DiscerningHearts.com presents Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. Joseph Pierce is the writer-in-residence and visiting fellow at Thomas More College in New Hampshire. He's the author of The Quest for Shakespeare and Through Shakespeare's Eyes. His other books include literary biographies of Oscar Wilde, J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton, and Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He is the co-editor of the St. Austin Review, a premier international journal of Catholic culture, literature, and ideas. He is the editor of the Ignatius Critical Editions, on which this series is based. The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Joseph, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's a joy as always, Chris. I am so looking forward to our conversation about The Wasteland, a work of poetry by T.S. Eliot that really is quite an extraordinary piece of literature. Yeah, it's probably, or at least arguably, the most important poem composed in the 20th century, certainly one of the most influential, and I actually think one of the, one of the finest and one of the greatest. It's, uh, it was very controversial at the time and divided people's opinion between the, uh, the moderns who loved it and the anti-moderns who hated it. And I know that you know, G.K. Chesterton and C.S. Lewis were very, very opposed to uh, Eliot's uh, poetic style. But then other, other uh, poets such as Edith Sitwell championed T.S. Eliot. And in my book, uh, Literary Converse, there's a, there's a chapter called Poetry in Commotion that talks about this sort of civil war, if you like, or somewhat uncivil war of words on occasion between rival poetic groups with the traditionists on the one hand and, um, and the, the moderns on the other, the avant-garde on the other. And the, and the irony is that on both sides of that divide it, it were those who, who were Catholic converts. So, I mean, on the one side, amongst the... the uh, traditionalists who were opposed to T.S. Eliot and, and his sort of modernist school of poetry were people like G.K. Chesterton and Alfred Noyes, both of whom were, were converts to the faith. But on Eliot's side was Edith Sitwell, who was uh, also a convert to the faith. And of course, T.S. Eliot himself received into the Anglo-Catholic Church, considered himself to be a Catholic, but within the Church of England, a rather anomalous position, which perhaps we can we can discuss also. So the point is that that this was a, a civil war between between the, the poets, but uh, it would be an oversimplification to say that good Catholics should be on one side or the other. I can only imagine the uh, turmoil that might have ensued in this trying to struggle with this. I think back to Stravinsky, the composer, when the Rite of Spring was first played. And right. from what I understood at that time, people got up and were just upset and appalled and walked out. And there was this big firestorm over this particular piece of music. And yet now it's become an important part of the musical lexicon. Absolutely. And in fact, you know, slight tangent, but connected to this, the, the other great convert poet in the 20th century, Siegfried Sassoon, the war poet who went on to be received in the Catholic Church in later life, he wrote a wonderful poem called Concert Interpretation, the Sacre de Pantom, the Rites of Spring, about that riot in Paris on the premiere of Stravinsky's Rites of Spring, and basically sort of 
almost lampooning it as a load of bourgeois nonsense because now sort of 10 years on it's 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 part of in fact it's less than 10 years on when, when uh Sassoon wrote this it was part of the musical canon and become thoroughly bourgeois and respectable and of course the same thing would apply to to Eddie's the wasteland i mean yeah, for all of the, the the horror and controversy that it caused upon its publication in 1922 very, very quickly became a standard of literature texts in, in, in high schools and universities and really became sort of, yeah, very, very bourgeois. In fact, it's it, a brave man to suggest that it wasn't the great work that most people seem to agree that it was. Written in 1922, uh, that's very important for us to keep in mind the time period in which this sprung from. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, that the period following the First World War, the First World War ended, of course, in November 1918. And the period immediately following that really was a, a period of, uh, of, of wasteland, should we say, a, a period in which people were questioning what exactly civilization was or wasn't. It seems that the, the Europe that had just cut itself to pieces in this uh, fratricidal war had lost its sort of moral compass, its moral authority, its moral bearings, and people were questioning exactly what was civilization. Uh, it, it certainly couldn't be the sort of civilization that they were claiming that people were fighting for during a uh, during this fratricidal war. So it's a, it's a vacuum, which Eddie's poem sort of uh, filled with, uh, if you like, the fears and the disdain that the modern generation felt towards, uh, towards the sort of so-called civilization that had led to the, to the First World War. I remember the first time I encountered the wasteland, it was in college, and we had company notes in which it almost became a little bit too analytical going back and forth. It was one of those that... Once I later, in later years, would hear it read by T.S. Eliot himself, it made more sense. I mean, it was one of those where it almost to the ear, in overstudying it, sometimes it kind of takes away from the, the flow, as it were. Well, I think part of the problem is that Eddie has been very poorly served by the critics over the years, with a few exceptions. Most of the critics, most of those that praise Eddie, uh, actually damn him because mm-hmm. they don't understand where he's coming from. They make him out to be someone, or the wasteland at least, as being something which is anti-religious or irreligious, something iconoclastic, which basically was cynical towards Christendom and Christian civilization, and that nothing could be further from the truth. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem, is that most critics, if anything, they actually obscure the true, profoundly Christian meaning of the poem rather than actually clarify the difficulties of the poem. It is a difficult poem, and no no one pretends otherwise, but it's not that difficult. And basically, when you scratch beneath the surface of Eddie's Wasteland, and you look at the intertextuality, the references he shows us in the poem, uh, it's quite clearly a work which laments uh, the divorce uh, of modernity from Christian tradition. And the Wasteland is the consequence, the fragmentation of culture that followed the divorce from the unifying influence of the Catholic Church. So this is quite clear from the poem. It's quite clear from where Eliot's moving at the time he's writing it. We need to get one thing very clear here. When uh, Eliot was back, it was in studying at the Sorbonne in Paris in 1910. Mm-hmm. He fell under the influence of Action Francaise, the leader of, of which, Jean Moraz, de- declared himself to basically be a Catholic, a monarchic, and a classic. So a classicist, a monarchist, and a Catholic. So when Eliot was received into the Anglo-Catholic Church in 1928, so 18 years later, 
Eliot declares himself to be a Catholic, a classicist, and a royalist. In other words, echoing exactly the words of Sean Moraz in 1910. Well, when's, when's um, The Wasteland written in 1922? Right in the middle of that period. So it's quite clear that Eliot was still was already a proponent and an advocate of the radical traditionalism of someone like Sean Moraz that believed we had to get back to to a sort of medieval understanding of civilization and culture and politics in order to to make sense of the modern world. And also the other thing, at the same the time that Eliot's writing The Wasteland, he's walking around with a pocket edition of Dante's Divine Comedy in his pocket. Dante's his master. He's, he writes in a letter at around the time he's writing The, the Wasteland that having read uh, Dante, he's so brilliant that I feel that all I can do is to point to him and, re- and be silent. But of course he doesn't. In the, in the, in the Wasteland, he alludes to uh, the Inferno in the early part of the poem on two occasions, uh, alludes to the Purgatorio in the final part of the poem, because that's the ascent. There's an ascent here in both senses of the word, an ascent in, in the sense of saying yes to faith and yes to tradition and yes to culture and the continuum and the connect, connection between the various aspects of Western culture, but also an ascent in the other sense of an upward movement away from the Wasteland towards reconciliation with God through the church. It's stunning in its depth as far as, just from my perspective, which is just a a mere perspective, but you look around as you travel through this journey through the wasteland, he is very keen in picking the things that are so dark in the human heart, in isolation, in pain, and yet he moves you into hope. Is that the key? Absolutely. The, the, the trajectory of the poem it actually reflects the trajectory that the poet is on at the time he's writing it. The poet is moving towards Christian conversion. The poem itself is moving towards Christian conversion. And in the final part of the poem, that Christian conversion is basically accepted and the peace that passeth all understanding, which is where the poem ends, is achieved and attained through the awful daring of a moment's surrender. And that awful daring of a moment surrender is the embrace and acceptance of, of faith in Christ and his church. So it's a moment of conversion. It's through that conversion that a peace that passeth understanding is attained. Now, when Eliot's writing this poem, he's, you know, he's miserable in many ways. His life is a bit of a mess. A personal life is a bit of a mess. But the trajectory is moving towards conversion. And what we see, if, if the poet is not actually a convert at the time he writes it, there's a great desire for conversion. And it's that desire for conversion and that disdain for the for the wasteland of modernity and its vacuous faithlessness, which is which animates the poem. And, and as you rightly say, it's a movement from the showing of the darkness and the evil and the emptiness and the hollowness of the wasteland in the early parts of the poem, all the things that are wrong with the modern world, that moves towards an embrace and acceptance of traditional Christianity at, at its conclusion. It's also great fun for someone as you're reading it. I know that's going to sound strange, but the things that he touches upon, whether it's Tristan and Isolde, or are just different times, I mean, Greek mythology. I mean, there are so many allusions to, to Shakespeare and then, of course, to the scriptures. I mean, as you read this, if you're willing, I mean, there's so many pings on ancient culture all the way up to our modern times. Absolutely. Eliot, of course, was extremely well-read. He was a very 
cultured, cultivated, civilized man who was well was steeped in the uh, the works of the what we now call the great books, the works of Western civilization, and. The, the reason the wasteland is, is such a desert is because it's fragmented. They no longer, they, they've severed themselves from that tradition, from that continuum. So this, this fragmentation of broken images that, that Eliot refers to there. From the Wasteland, as read by poet T.S. Eliot. What are the roots that glut? What branches grow out of this stony rubbish? Son of man, you cannot say or guess, for you know only a heap of broken images where the sun beats. And the dead tree gives no shelter, the cricket no relief, and the dry stone no sound of water. Only there is shadow under this red rock, Come in under the shadow of this red rock, and I will show you something different from either your shadow at morning striding behind you or your shadow at evening rising to meet you. I will show you fear in a handful of dust. This really is a damning indictment of the modern world that because of its contempt for the past and its contempt for Christianity and its contempt for Western civilization and Western culture, it no longer makes the connections between various works of literature, various great books. It no longer makes the connections between the sciences, by which we mean all the sciences, science being scientia, the Latin for knowledge. So between theology and philosophy and history and natural philosophy, which we now call the physical sciences, and literature and art, music, all of these things should be connected in a holistic and holy sense. Then that's what the modern world has lost. And that's why it's become a desert, a wasteland. So what Eliot's doing with his intertextuality, to give it its technical term in the poem, where he's pointing throughout the poem to all sorts of other great works of Western civilization. He's pointing to these as ways of showing us something beyond, something that transcends and something that's deeper than the wasteland. And the challenge, of course, is for us to know those works as well as Eliot knows those works, because it's through making those connections that the, the, we get beyond the broken images and the fragmentation towards the wholeness and holiness of a Christian life and a Christian understanding of reality. The poem itself is broken into five different episodes, as it were. Absolutely, yeah. It's moving, again, you know, it, it, the burial of the dead. Uh, you know, There's a symbolism in all of this. The burial of the dead, part one. Um, this is basically showing the culture of death, what we would now call the culture of death. And if you like burying it, it's, it's something which needs to be put behind us. A game of chess is a lot of irony here. It alludes in to various uh, works of literature, but not least uh, to The Tempest, part two, a game of chess, alludes to The Tempest, where in The Tempest, um, uh, when uh, uh, Prospero uh, is, is concerned that his daughter is being betrayed, he discovers actually, she, rather than his daughter succumbing to carnal desire, he finds that uh, Miranda and uh, Fernando Ferdinand are actually uh, playing chess. And of course, he can't find to think of anything more further, should we say, from copulation than chess. So, yeah, but, but of course, there's an irony here because a lot of this part two is about the abuse of sex, uh, about the, the culture of death, about abortion. And uh, running through it all, by the way, is, is a memento mori, the, the traditional Christian way of presenting 
the ultimate reality of humankind, which is the reminder of death, the memento mori. The memento mori is always meant to remind us of the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. And that, the poem being seen as a whole as a memento mori, particularly the earlier parts, it's very important for us to know that. The, the shadow of man, he talks about in part one, is being shown the shadow of death. And that is important for us to come to an understanding. So in the famous bar scene in part two, in a game of chess, when the barman at the end, pub scene, keeps saying, hurry up, please, it's time, in, in big uppercase letters. You know, this is a, repent, hurry up, please, it's time, you're going to die. You know, you're talking about all this nonsense about abortion, this immediately before, uh, this re- reference to uh, a woman who takes uh, drugs to bring about a miscarriage. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, and, and it's about repenting. And if you have know, the fire sermon, again, is about lust, and it's the lust from the rich, from uh, Queen Elizabeth and the Earl of Leicester, Antony and Cleopatra, to the middle class, to the typist in her room, to the poor, to the women in the bar. And uh, the fire sermon ultimately brings us back to Carthage, which is where Dido, of course, in the Aeneid, had a relationship with uh, Aeneas, which is was disastrous for all concern, where, if you like, lust got the better of duty to God and to country. To, to Carthage, then I came. But Carthage also refers to St. Augustine. And it ends with, O Lord, thou pluckest me out. O Lord, thou pluckest burning. And this is a, a reference to St. Augustine's uh, confessions. And then death by water, of course, is another memento mori. It's death again, but death by water, this is part four of the poem, is baptism. So it's death, but it's also a premonition and a prophecy of resurrection. And then finally, what the thunder said, part five, is where we come to the resolution through the embrace of faith, the surrender to faith, and uh, the peace that comes in consequence of that. The last chapter is so powerful unto itself. I mean, what the thunder said. Somebody who's coming up and he's on the rock, and he's experiencing all those things that the prophets, in essence, would experience when you go back into the scriptures, but he puts it into a context that's very much 20th century. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, and we see here that, the, that what the wasteland needs, of course, is living water. It's, it's a desert that lacks living water. If there were water and no rock, if there were rock and also water, and water, a spring, a pool among the rock, if there were the sound of water only, not the cicada and dry grass singing, but sound of water over a rock, where the hermit thrush sings in the pine trees, drip, drop, drip, drop, 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 but there is no water. So you see this absolute desire. This is, this is a culture, the wasteland, that's literally dying of thirst because it's not accepting and embracing and drinking of the living water, which is Christ. So immediately after this reference to the water, we have a, a reference to the road to Emmaus. Who is the third who walks always beside you? When I count, there are only you and I together. But when I look ahead, up the white road, there is always another one walking beside you, gliding, wrapped in a brown mantle, hooded. I do not know whether a man or a woman, but who is that on the other side of you? Of course, the third walks always beside us is Christ. 
so this um, we go immediately from this uh, uh, the lack of water there is no water to the one who provides food and drink spiritually for humanity and that's uh, Christ himself there are so many moments throughout the poem where when you realize the wasteland isn't just about a place, it's more about the people that you're encountering in the place. I mean, oh, whether, absolutely. It's like yeah. the clairvoyant in the very first one where she's you know, doing the tarot cards and to do the prediction and she comes up empty and it's hollow. Yeah, well, that's the, again, spiritualism is extremely fashionable. You know, we sometimes think that the new age is something which is very new. It's uh, the new age is already suffering of old, from old age. It was very, very fashionable in the late 19th century and the first part of the 20th century. So, you know, this is Eliot showing the, again, the, the vacuous nature of this sort of spirituality, which at worst is demonic and at best, as you say, is, is completely fatuous. But yeah, you're right. It's not just about a place. The wasteland's not about a place. Or if it is about a place, it's about a place in our own hearts, in the hearts of each of us. So that, that's, for instance, conclusion of part one. He finishes part one by a, a reference to, we start speaking French, and it's a line from a poem by Charles Baudelaire. You, hypocrite lecteur, mon semblable, mon frère, you, hypocrite reader, my semblance, my brother. It, this is the final line of Baudelaire's poem to the reader at the beginning of his famous uh, volume of poems, Les Fleurs de Mal, the, the flowers of sickness or the evil flowers. And the whole point about it, he, he goes through this list of the sins and the and the sickness in, in, in society, but the final line is, you, hypocrite reader, I'm talking about you. So again, what Eliot does in plucking this line from Baudelaire is telling us that this poem is about us. It's not something irrelevant that we can look at in a detached fashion. This is the wasteland in our own hearts that we have to escape from, or I should say, or at least gain water for so it doesn't die. So it's about us, not just about a, a, some distant place. It's about the wasteland inside our own hearts. Yeah, It's one thing to read someone's conversion story or to hear it. And you hear, you know, at this moment, at this time, and you watch it progress. What happens in this poem, though, it's more of the conversion of someone's heart. And it is the back and the forth and the, the nuances and the, and the images. And it's, I mean, something that is not as easy as a straight line biography. It, it's, it's something very different, isn't it? Yeah, in many ways, it's, it's, it's more powerful because mm -hmm. what it's doing is showing someone who understands the wasteland, who's lived in the wasteland, who has the wasteland in his own heart and sees and understands how evil and empty and, and unsatisfying it is. And what, what's needed is, is an escape from it because the, at root, the wasteland is egocentric and narcissistic. It's basically the fruits of relativism where there is no reality beyond myself and my judgment of it. And the, I'm, I'm the sole arbiter of truth. And again, so again, in the poem, you know, in part one of the poem, Eliot right at the beginning says, and I will show you something different from either your shadow at morning striding behind you or your shadow at evening rising to meet you. In other words, I'm going to show you something beyond your own shadow. In other words, something beyond, beyond yourself. You have to get out of the shadow of yourself to see something bigger and better, which is the cosmos that God created. So immediately after that, or your shadow at evening rising rising to meet you, I will show you fear in a handful of dust. So he's again, this is about us, hypocrite readers, 
and he's going to show us fear in a handful of dust. What's the handful of dust he's going to show us? The wasteland itself, which is a handful of dust that has no water, no life, not life-giving grace or spirit because it's turned its back on the source of all life-giving grace and spirit, which is Christ and his church. Would you say, Joseph, that this particular poem, as the reader enters into it, well, they'll find that even it, and it's, it's a long poem, but actually a short read compared to, uh, to books you know, of, or novels, that it actually could take more time because you should pause with each stanza, with each, each section for a Absolutely. period and really grapple with it. I mean, that's the challenge of it. Well, I think one of the reasons that poetry is so out of fashion these days is that we live in a society that that's, doesn't know how to stand still for a moment, doesn't know how to contemplate and meditate. So for the same reason that we live in a society that does not understand how to pray, because prayer means setting yourself apart from the world for a while and making yourself present to God, um, that a poem demands the same thing. That you, In order to read a poem, we have to slow down. We have to shut off other things. And we have to give it the time and attention it deserves and demands. So yes, the wasteland's not a uh, not a very long poem. It's not very short either. But it's not very long. We could read it through probably in about ten minutes. Mm-hmm. But to read it, we probably need to take a, a few hours. And and better still, you know, go to places where this poem points. It points towards Shakespeare. Let's go to Shakespeare. Why is he pointing towards this particular scene in Shakespeare? Why is he pointing to this particular stanza in Dante? Why is he mentioning Baudelaire? So, in other words, this really can be and should be a springboard, a launching pad into re-embracing and reconnecting the fragmented pieces of Christian culture. That's what it invites us to do, and and it deserves our time and attention. Because really, uh, it will lead us closer to God. And that's basically what all good poetry and all good art does, is lead us closer to God. Therefore, it's never, ever a waste of time to spend our time with the great poets and the great writers. I wish we had more time to continue to glean all the different aspects of this. What would be some of the key things you would want the reader to look for? I think this is a, a poem that it's going to be difficult for the average reader to, to really understand unassisted. But also, uh, the problem is, of course, that, that uh, most modern critics are actually going to muddy the waters rather than clear them. So uh, it, is, it, is, it is problematic. It's worth reading. Worth reading, I would say, in relation to this conversation with you and to source the, the handful of good Eliot scholars that can help to enlighten the poem for us. We, T.S. Eliot as a whole, this and later works such as four quartets that are much more openly and overtly Christian are worthy of all of us knowing. One thing I'd like to mention before we go, there's towards the end of the poem, Eliot talks about unreal cities, that modern London is unreal, it's artificial, and artificial life is ultimately the culture of death, it's not truly alive at all. And towards the end of the poem, he lists all of these falling towers, as he calls them, falling towers, Jerusalem, Athens, Alexandria, Vienna, London, unreal. And what he does here, of course, is basically go through the history of Western civilization. Jerusalem, Athens, Alexandria, Vienna, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and London, you know, the British Empire. But what's missing from that list? What's missing from that list is Rome. There's no Rome on that list because Rome is not a falling tower. Rome is an eternal city. Wonderful. 
I can't wait to uh, go back and reread it again now that we've had our conversation. Once again, you've opened the door to so many other avenues. <laughs> I well, can't wait I- to explore it. That's the idea. Always moving further on and further in, as uh, C.S. Lewis would say. Joseph, thank you so much. My pleasure as always, Chris. God bless you. You've been listening to Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. To hear and or to download this conversation along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce.